Is God a trinity? Is he three gods or one? Well, the answer to this question has everything to do with love, and we're going to examine that on this week's episode of the Faith by Reason podcast. Welcome to the podcast. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net, and there you will find the blog and this podcast and our social media and just a ton of, of great information. So go check it out. We are still on the series of what's the point? What's the point of existence? What is the meaning of life? And so far, we know that God created the universe. He created existence. So he has the answer to the question of what's the point of existence. So we have been examining God. We know that God is always and completely right and just. And we also know that that, that that's all we can know about him based purely on uh, human logic and reason. Anything else we know about God would have to naturally come from God. And of course, we have an information source from God, the Judeo-Christian Bible. And that's kind of a recap of the uh, last few episodes. And in the very last episode, we started talking about one of the primary and definitive characteristics of God, and that is love. God is love. That's the first Bible verse most of us hear is God is love. And we defined love in the last podcast that love is giving without the expectation of getting anything in return. That is the objective, non-contradictory definition of love. And in this podcast, obviously, we were going to talk about another important aspect of God, and that is the Trinity. Is God actually triune? Is he one God expressed in three persons, or is the Trinity a, a misunderstanding or, or misapplication of the way God is presented in the Bible? But before we get to that, I want to address uh, something that I talked about in the last podcast. At the beginning, I talked about or I related the story of a confrontation I had with an atheist at a party. The atheist was uh, uh, impugning God's character and God's love, and he confronted me about it. And I basically told him that his entire premise was wrong and that his premise about love was wrong and therefore his premise about God's love was wrong. And so he had no basis for his argument. And I kind of walked away from there. I was kind of taken to task by a couple of listeners who emailed me saying that by my own definition of love, I was not being loving to the atheist because I didn't give him a complete answer. I just kind of you know, told him his premises were wrong and walked away. And to that accusation, I say guilty as charged. <laughs> I absolutely did not give the atheist all of my information because I didn't have to. There is no command in the Bible that says we have to be always and completely loving Frankly, he's fortunate that I even gave him the information that I did. And and here's the thing. There is precedent in the Bible for, for doing this sort of thing, for not actually giving all of your information or all of yourself or any of your value to someone who's not going to appreciate it. Jesus himself talks about uh, giving giving your pearls, putting pearls before swine or basically putting your value before someone who's not going to appreciate it. The verse goes, you know, don't put your pearls before swine. I'm paraphrasing because they'll just trample on it. Basically, swine, pigs don't appreciate pearls and atheists are someone whose motivation is not to learn, but to just have a argument that they hope to justify their unbelief. Well, they're pigs in this situation and my my knowledge is value. And so why should I give that value to someone who is not going to appreciate it, who is not going to benefit, who's simply going to trample on it? And in fact, Jesus himself lives out uh, that, that that very analogy that he gave in his ministry. If you look when, at Jesus when his first ministry when his ministry first started, look at the book of Matthew, starting in Matthew five. That's when Jesus starts his ministry. He starts teaching, and he's teaching people doctrine directly, and he's being very forthcoming and very forthright, and just giving a lot of profound information. 
And a lot of people get it and they start to follow him and, and, and know that he is, is the Lord, he's the Messiah. But then there's a lot of other people, particularly the Pharisees, who don't believe him, who disparage him and who confront him and accuse him of all sorts of things. So you'll find that around Matthew chapter 13, he stops teaching people directly. He starts teaching people in parables, in these stories that, um, that are, are given in place of pure doctrine. And a lot of people have the wrong idea about parables. If you ask someone, you know, why did Jesus teach in parables? They'll say, oh, well, you know, parables, they are the stories that Jesus put his doctrine into in order to make it easier for people to understand. But that's not the case. It's not the case at all. In fact, it's the opposite. When Jesus, when, when Jesus' disciples came to him and they said to Jesus, hey, why are you teaching people in parables? Jesus said, I'm teaching them in parables so that the people who know me, who understand me, and who believe in me will get my teaching, but the people who don't believe in me will not get it. It will be intentionally hidden, hidden from them. So Jesus was intentionally hiding information from people, obscuring it from people, because he knew that they were unbelievers. In fact, if you look at the parables, after the parables, Jesus generally had to explain what they meant because they were confusing. Jesus had to say, okay, here's a parable of the sower. Here's the parable of of the mustard seed or, or the talents. And then afterwards, he would say, here's what this parable actually means. So if it was meant to be easier to understand, he wouldn't have to explain it later. So he was explaining it only to his inner circle, to his believers. He taught that like that intentionally to obscure it from the swine who would trample it. So... I have no obligation to be more loving than Jesus. Moreover, I could actually make the argument that there's no direct command for Christians to be universally loving to everyone. If you look at the verses that talk about love that Jesus talks about or that the disciples talk about in the epistles, Jesus said, you know, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Well, who's the audience? Remember, in biblical interpretation, we have to look into context. Who is he talking to? Jesus was talking to believers when he says... The new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Another verse, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Who is he talking to? His disciples. Who is he telling them to love each other? So again, I could argue, argue that love other Christians. And frankly, that's what this podcast and the blog is all about. Me giving my information to other Christians. Now, now that doesn't mean that you can't be loving to everyone if you want to be. But I don't think there's a, a clear command to. So consider that my gift to you, because people love accusing Christians of not being loving. Secularists and atheists, unbelievers are always saying, oh, you Christians, you want, you're supposed to be loving like Jesus, but you aren't loving. You say, no, I'm exactly loving like Jesus, because here's a real definition of love, the, the objective, non-contradictory definition of, of, from the Bible of Jesus' love, and I live up to it, because love is not being nice. See, that's what people, people have the wrong definition of love. They think love is some type of feeling or an emotion or, or being really nice to someone. And so when a Christian has the audacity to not be nice to someone, because you know, we're human beings and that just happens, then, well, you're not, not, you're, you're, you're not being nice. You're not being loving. Well, no, that's not what love is. So again, that, there's my gift to you. Whenever someone can, uh, accuses you of not being loving because you're not being a sweetheart all the time, just let them know that they have the wrong definition of love and give them the right one. And you know what? Since I'm in such a generous mood today, I'm going to give you another gift before we get into the main teaching. And that is how to combat one of the other main accusations that unbelievers love to give to Christians or love to accuse them of, and that is being judgmental. Oh, that is a big one. You Christians are too judgmental. And they base it on Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. That is the unbeliever's favorite verse. If they know no other verse in the entire Bible, they know Matthew 7, 1. 
What does that say? Judge not lest you be judged. Oh, you Christian, you can't judge. You can't judge me because your Bible says that Christians are to judge not. Now, what they mean by this is that Christians are not allowed to have a negative opinion about anything, which is absolutely ridiculous to say that just because you accept Jesus as your personal savior means you can never think negatively about anything. That's utterly asinine. And it's, and furthermore, it's an incorrect interpretation of that verse because that word judge does not mean negative opinion. Again, remember, the Bible was not written in English. It was translated into English and the translators did the best job they could, but the vernacular changes. So that word judge, doesn't. We don't use it, it's not to be used in the same way that we use the word judge, which means to evaluate something. No, that word judging in the original language, in the original intent and context means you cannot, uh, you cannot mete out punishment. It's basically saying you can't punish someone or you can't sentence someone. Why? Because we don't have enough information to mete out a sentence or a judgment on someone, a, a punishment on someone. But we can evaluate whether or not they are right or wrong. We are allowed to do that. How do I know that? Well, because unbeknownst to most unbelievers, Matthew 7 has more than one verse. It actually has a bunch of verses. And later on in Matthew 7, we are actually told to judge the effects of someone. We are told to render an opinion or an evaluation on their fruit or their effects. So we can't judge the causes because we don't know all the causes. Only God knows all the causes, but we can judge the effects. In fact, I will give you an explanation from our regular life. Here in the United States, we have a, a, a system of justice that involves a jury trial. And anyone can be a jurist, whether you are a doctor or a lawyer or you mop floors at Burger King for a living, you, you can be called to jury duty. And your job as a jurist is simply to look at the evidence that is presented to you and render a verdict of guilty or not guilty. You are to make an evaluation based on evidence. That is not Matthew 7, 1 judging. That is simply making an evaluation. That's actually Matthew 7, 15, evaluating fruit. We're allowed to do that. We can say if there is an assault case, your honor, we looked at the case and we, the jury, find the person guilty. And then the judge what he does is he he sentences. He comes up with the punishment. Why? Because he has more information. He's been specially trained. He's gone to law school. He has his his uh, his JD degree, and he is the one who has the experience to say, well, because you committed this assault, you are sentenced to five years in prison. That's the judge's job. And that in back to Matthew seven one, God's job is to judge. God says what the punishment is because God has all the information. God knows the causes, but we can know the we we can evaluate the effects. So if I see a guy kick an old woman down a flight of stairs, I can say, hey, that's wrong. That's not judging. What I can't say is, hey, you kick that old woman down a flight of stairs. You should go to hell for the rest of eternity. I can't do that. I don't have all the information, but I can judge his effects. I can see that kicking a woman down a flight of stairs is wrong. That's all I can say. But what I can't say is what his punishment should be, because that would be judging. And that is what Christians are not supposed to do. So there's my second gift to you. Next time someone accuses you of being judgmental, then tell them what the real uh, what the real definition of judging is. And you'll always find, by the way, that the only people who use that verse are guilty people. You never find an innocent person saying, don't judge me because they're innocent. Only guilty people are people who know they've done something wrong or the, the ones who are going to say, oh, you can't judge me, Christian. And, you know, you, you know, their real motivation. All right, let's move on. Is God a Trinity? And what does that have to do with love? That's the main purpose of the podcast. Now that I've gone 10 minutes talking about other stuff. Anyway, um, 
it's a very controversial idea inside and outside of Christianity, whether or not God is triune. What does that really mean? So, well, before we, we dive into it and examine it, let's look at what the doctrine of the Trinity actually says. And then we'll just examine whether or not it, it meets with objective reality and whether or not we can prove it one way or the other. The doctrine of the Trinity states that God is one God expressed in three persons, and those persons are called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, just keep in mind that God is not a name. He's not a proper name. His name isn't God Jackson or God Johnson. That's not his name. God is a title. Whatever you worship is your God. Gods are mentioned throughout the Bible. Um, people worshiped them and they were called gods. But that doesn't mean they were the true God of the Judeo-Christian Bible because, that's just, again, it's just a title. Whatever you worship is your God. If you worship, if you're, if, if you're an Islamic, then your God is, is Allah. That's the God of, of Islam. If you, if you worship money, then money is your God. So God's not a name, it's a title. So let's keep that in mind. So when we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're not saying that God the Father gave birth to God the Son, or, or, or God the Holy Spirit is just some essence flowing out there in the ether. No, the doctrine of the Trinity states that each one of these persons is fully God. They have their own will, their own personality, their own person. And, and naturally, all of them would be the first cause. It is admittedly kind of an odd doctrine if we look at it in human terms, because a person can't be three people. I can't be three people, but again, I'm, I'm a human being. I'm not a spirit. So I don't know all the physics of spirituality. And if you, unless you know the physics of spirituality, can you really say what spirits can and cannot be? Uh, but despite how strange it is, there is biblical evidence that people use to uh, support the idea that God is triune. Why? Because if you look at the Bible, all three of these personages are called God. God the Father is called God throughout the Bible. God the Son is called God um, in places in the New Testament, as is the Holy Spirit. And, and by the way, this uh, podcast goes along with the blog post on, on the Trinity called Love is a Three-Way. Yeah, I know. I was just being facetious with that. But in, in that podcast, which I'll have in the sh a link to in the show notes, I give all these scriptures that, that I'll be using. So you can look them up there. So all three are called God throughout the Bible. They're given that title of God. All three are given credit for the creation. All three are given credit for being the first cause. Off the top of my head, I know that God the Father is 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 given credit for creation throughout the book at the end of the book of Job. Um, the Holy Spirit is given credit for creation in, in Genesis one, which says, you know, the Spirit of God moved upon the waters and then creation happened after that. And I know God the Son is given credit for creation in uh, the epistle of John chapter 1, um, as well as I'm um, in the book of Colossians. So all three are considered to be the first cause in the Bible. But despite this evidence, it's again, the Trinity is very controversial inside and outside of the Bible. Obviously, people who don't believe in the Bible, they throw away the bath, baby with the bathwater. They don't believe anything about God. But even um, other religions that acknowledge uh, the Bible still have their issues with the Trinity. For example, Islam, uh, they they consider themselves the only monotheistic religion because they believe that Christians worship three gods. They look at the concept of the Trinity and they say, well, you know, you Christians, you're not monotheists. You actually, you're polytheists. You, you worship three gods. Well, one of the many problems with Islam is that they get it wrong here because according to Islam, the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Virgin Mary. So they can't even get the members of the Trinity right. So I'm not even going to give give any any credence to to their objections. And the religion was also started by an epileptic goat herder named Muhammad. But that's neither here nor there. 
And then you have certain quasi-Christian religions like uh, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness who also deny the Trinity. And even calling them quasi-Christian, I think, is being very generous. Uh, to be honest with you, they're, they're cults. And I don't call them cults just because I disagree with them, but because they fit the description of a cult. They were started by a charismatic leader who claimed he got some special revelation from God that no one else got, that God only decided to give to him and his little special group of people. So God doesn't want everyone to have knowledge, just these people that um, listen to the, to the guru and his small following, which is completely antithetical to the Bible. And they, you have to separate from your family and friends, and you can't ever question the fearless leader. Anything he says is, is, is greater than the Bible. And if you have the audacity to actually question this stuff and think for yourself, then you're excommunicated from your friends and family who are in the group. So it, they're cults. And so Mormonism, they don't believe in the Trinity, the traditional Trinity. They actually believe that God started out as a regular man born on a planet far, far away. And by adhering to Mormon teachings, he evolved into God and became a spirit being and married a bunch of spirit wives with whom he had a bunch of spirit children, two of whom were named Jesus and Lucifer. That's right. In Mormon theology, Jesus and Lucifer, uh, Jesus and the devil are brothers. So I'm, I'll put them right on the same level as Islam as far as being credible when it comes to the Trinity. And then you have the Jehovah's Witnesses. These are the folks who come on Saturday morning and knock on your door and wake you up or interrupt you when you're watching the game so they can give you one of their pamphlets and tell you about the real Jesus that was really revealed to their shaman or guru or whoever it was who started the Jehovah's Witness religion. But they don't believe in a trinity. They don't believe that all three persons are, are God. They believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they believe that only the Father is God. They believe that Jesus is actually the incarnation of the archangel Michael, and the Holy Spirit is just the essence of God. So they don't believe in the trinity. And also, for some reason, they don't believe that Jesus actually died on a cross. They believe that he died on a on a pole instead of a cross. I don't understand why that's a big deal unless they think that Jesus was a stripper and that's why he died on a pole. I don't get it. But anyway, they don't believe in a trinity and they're always interrupting your day. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you yet another gift. We've already I've already given you a couple of gifts on about how to deal with people who accuse you of not being loving and being judgmental. Well, here's uh, here's my other gift to you and that is how to get rid of Jehovah's Witnesses and make sure they never come back. And it has everything to do with the Trinity. You see, Jehovah's Witnesses, they're very well trained in their doctrine, uh, very, even better trained, unfortunately, than most Christians are. And they, they know their apologetics. And so when you come at them with the normal Bible verses that Christians generally use to uh, defend the Trinity, they'll be ready for you. If you come up to them with John chapter 1 about in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, they'll be able to come up with an answer. If you talk about how all the times where Jesus said that I and the Father are one, they'll be able to, to come back at you with something. But I found one thing that they have not been able to solve yet, and, and here it is. When they come to your door, ask them, who is Jesus? Is Jesus God? And they'll say, no, no, he's not God. He's whatever they say he is. You say, okay, great. Here's what I want you to do. Um, I'm going to give you five Bible verses. And after each verse, I'm going to ask you a question and then we'll be done. Okay. And they'll say, okay. And okay, pull out your Bible. The first verse is Isaiah 41.4. Who has performed it and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and with that, the last. I am he. And you ask them, okay, who is that? I'll say, well, that's Jehovah God. That's their name for God the Father is Jehovah God. I say, great. Now let's go to Isaiah 44, 6, just a couple chapters over. 
Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who is that? So, well, that's Jehovah God. Great. Couple chapters over. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel. My called, I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Okay, now who is that? We'll say, well, that's Jehovah God. Awesome. Now let's go over to the back of the Bible. Let's go to the book of Revelation. Revelation 22:13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Who is that? Well, that's Jehovah God. Okay, now by this time, I'm just trying to get a little irritated with you. But remember, they're the ones who knocked on your door. They interrupted your day. So you have, you have a captive audience. They say, okay, great. We have one last verse and then we'll be done. And so now let's go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Uh-oh, now we have a problem. Now they have clearly acknowledged through those previous verses that that title, the first and the last, is a title of God the Father. Yet this verse says that God the Father was dead and came back to life. When did that happen? Well, Orthodox Christians know that that happened with the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But here, they, here it clearly says that God was dead and came back to life. And when you give them that verse, they'll say, oh, well, uh, we don't know. We need to go back and talk to our fearless leader and we'll come back. And you'll never see him again. I see the Jehovah's Witnesses go to all my neighbor's houses on Saturday and they pass mine right by. And it's awesome. So there you go. My third and last gift of the day to you. But as I said, the Trinity is also controversial in Orthodox Christianity. You have certain Christian denominations who do not believe that God is triune. Uh, among them are the a group of Pentecostals called the Oneness Pentecostals. And as their name implies, they believe that there is only one God, God the Father, and that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are not actually separate entities, but that they are some, kind of, some type of aspect of God or something even more heretical. In fact, if you look at certain of these TV preachers like Creflo Dollar, who is a heretic, and yes, I'm being judgmental when I called him a heretic, but he, he preaches heresy. And one of his heresies is that Jesus was not God, that Jesus was just a regular old man who grew into his godhood. And of course, that gets into Gnostic style teaching, which because the, 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 the basic implication is that we can also become God as human beings just by learning certain things. And we can grow into our godhood and evolve into God, which is anti-biblical and is absolute nonsense and it's Gnostic. And, and some of the verses he uses to try to uh, justify it are pretty silly. He'll say, well, you know, it says in Psalms that uh, God does not slumber nor sleep. Yet we see in the Gospels that Jesus got tired and went to sleep. So Jesus can't be God. How stupid is that? Jesus, he, in his incarnation, he was a human being. So, of course, he got tired and slept just like he ate and went to the bathroom. It has nothing to do with his godhood. And, and even a, a, a modicum of logic and reason would tell you that. But anyway, it's, it's silliness. But, but another one of the main uh, verses that they use to disparage the Trinity is the Shema. The Shema is the uh, most famous verse in, in Judaism. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy, where the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. That's, again, the famous verse in Judaism. The Jews repeat that verse all the time in, in um, the different feasts and ceremonies. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And they will say, well, this proves that God can only be one. Well, remember, God is not a name. It's a title. What it's saying is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is of one nature. And that nature has to do with holiness. And by the way, right now I will give you the objective, non-contradictory definition of holy. Holy means of one type, of one kind. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one 
type, one kind. He is holy. And what type of that? What is his nature? Always and completely right and just. So when the Bible talks of God's holiness and his purity, it's speaking of the fact that he is just one. He's of one type, of one kind. You'll note that when God is seated on the throne and the angels are worshiping him, they always say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That there is a hint of the Trinity. If the holiness means of one kind, it wouldn't be necessary to say it three times unless you were talking about three entities who are all holy, who are all of the same type, always and completely right and just. So what's interesting is that this verse, which is often used to try to disprove the Trinity, is actually the key to understanding how God could be a Trinity. Because if he has the one nature, always and completely right and just, that would mean that in order to be God, you'd have to first be there before the creation of the world, and you'd have to have the nature of God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can be God if they all have the same nature, if they are all always and completely right and just. So the Shema shows that it is possible for God to be more than one, but it doesn't prove that he's three. Actually, what the proof of that is love, the thing we've been talking about the past couple episodes. The love proves that God is triune. How? Well, let's look again at the definition of love. Love is giving without the expectation of getting anything in return. Now, we also know from the book of John chapter 17 that God was love before the foundation of the world, before creation. So if God was God before anything was created, then God has to be more than one. Why? Because you can't give to yourself. In order for God to have been love before anything else was created, there would have to be two because he would have to have someone to give something to. You'd have to have at least two beings that are always and completely right and just for there to be any giving involved. So, however, that's still not a loving situation. Why? Because it would be give and take. If I give you a dollar and you give the dollar back to me and I give it back to you, well, we're not creating any value. We're not doing anything loving. We're, that's just a business transaction. That's what we call a relationship. That's give and take. And there's no value created there. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean love. Because if I give you a dollar and you give me a bottle of water in return, that's not a loving relationship. It's a business relationship. So that's not love. In order for there to be love, you need to have another person. Here's the thing. In the Bible, the word relationship is never used to describe a loving interaction. The word the Bible uses is fellowship, and fellowship requires at least three people, three individuals, each giving directly and receiving love indirectly, and that's how value is created. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each loving each other directly and receiving love indirectly. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves the Father. The son loves the father. So there they are giving love to each other directly and receiving it back indirectly. And that creates value. And why is that value important? Because that value leads to creation. So that's God on a macro level. Let me give you an example on the micro level that we can relate to even better. The God gives a model of the perfect loving fellowship, and that is marriage. Marriage, godly biblical marriage, is not between two people. It's between three. There's the husband, the wife, and God, each loving each other directly and receiving love indirectly. And by doing that, and again, that's God's model of love. That's his earthly model for the loving relationship. And we're actually going to talk about why that's very important a few podcasts down the road when we finally get to the answer of what's the meaning of life. But the importance of that model is that that loving relationship, I'm sorry, that loving fellowship, forgive me, results in creation. It results in life. So God's model 
for the perfect loving fellowship results in a new life being created in the form of a baby here on earth. But in the heavenlies, in, in the eternity, it results in the creation of the universe. So let's summarize. God is Trinity because God is love. And in order to be in a loving fellowship, there has to be a minimum of three persons. Those persons are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each loving directly, receiving love indirectly. They are always and completely right and just. And because of that loving fellowship, we have the value needed to cause creation. And that is a perfect jumping off point, a perfect segue to the next series of podcasts. Because in the last few podcasts, we've been talking about things that are pretty immaterial and a little ethereal. We've been talking about love and transcendence and principles and stuff like that. But it's time now to get to the actual creation of the universe, the creation of the physical universe that we exist in. And we are going to spend the next few podcasts talking about creation. In the next podcast, we are going to talk about the physics behind creation. And we're going to look at the fact that not only is it possible for God to have spoken the world, the universe into existence, we will see that scientifically speaking, according to the laws of physics, that is the only rational and logical explanation of how the universe could have come into existence by someone speaking it into existence. So that's going to be some interesting stuff. And in the podcast after that, we are going to look at what the Bible says about creation. We're going to look at the first couple chapters of Genesis, and we'll look into things like the gap theory and the age of the earth and the age of the universe and whether or not that matters and how much it matters. And then, because I'm such a generous, magnanimous person, I'm going to give the opposing viewpoint. I'm going to give the viewpoint of the unbeliever of the atheist, and that is evolution. I'm going to talk about evolution and whether or not it is scientific, because they say it is. They say that evolution is science and that creation is just a matter of faith. But is it so? Um, I'm going to give you a preview and say it's absolutely not scientific. In fact, it is scientifically impossible. It is an utterly ludicrous fairy tale that has no basis in empirical science whatsoever. And then we're going to look at the philosophy that that results from evolution. Now, you have the Christian philosophy, which results from the idea of a loving creator creating the universe. But the cosmology of evolution also yields a philosophy, is utterly morally bankrupt and has led to more devastation than any philosophy in the history of the world. It has led to mass murder, to genocide, to cruelty, to inhumanity, to racism, to all kinds of horrible things. And the funny thing is that the atheists and unbelievers are always saying that religion is the problem with the world and that religion has led to all these horrible things. And to be fair, many horrible things have been done in the name of religion, but they don't come close to what's been done under Darwinian philosophy and in the name of atheistic Darwinian philosophy. And we will begin discussing all that in the next series of podcasts. So we're at the half hour mark. So let's wrap things up. Um, thank you for listening to the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, please leave me your comments. I'd love to hear them. And uh, subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to the blog. Uh, follow Faith by Reason on social media. And I will talk to you next week when we dive into our series on creation.